0: Well, it's me again. Hi again. I know that I had some family friends who they went to a different church, and they would always talk about how oh, the youth pastor is preaching again. So I apologize if that's you, if that's what you're thinking. The youth pastor is preaching once again, Um, but hopefully we'll have some fun together. Um, If you have not been with us over the last three weeks. We are in a series called Sound Doctrine, and um, we are taking a closer look at some different songs that we sing during this worship time, um, maybe introducing a few new ones, um, all for the purpose of discovering some of those deeper truths and scriptural um, backgrounds to what we are singing. Um, We're beginning by grounding ourselves in scripture, um, in the the word of God, hearing from God's word first, and then we are tying that to um, a song. And looking at what that song means, um, the background of it, and why we sing that in this time together. Um, and then we'll take a couple minutes to listen to it to actually sing it with one another. Um, hopefully, what this is doing is revealing to all of us some of those truths of what we sing. And um why we sing it again, not because it is scripture in and of itself, not because it is the word of God, but because it speaks to larger truths about the word of God. Um, so we base our faith, not in the songs that we sing, but in this thing right here, um, the word of God, the, the words that God has given us. And that is how we practice sound doctrine. Um, that's what we're going to start with this, this morning again. So would you stand with me as we read from God's word? Um, from Second Chronicles chapter 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the Lord's eyes, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the shrines that his father Hezekiah had destroyed, set up altars for the Baal's, And made sacred poles. He bowed down to all the stars in the sky and worshiped them. He even built altars in the Lord's temple. The very place the Lord was speaking about when he said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. Manasseh built altars for all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He burned his own sons alive in the Ben Hinnom Valley. Consulted sign readers, fortune tellers, and sorcerers, and used mediums and diviners He did much evil in the Lord's eyes and made him angry. Manasseh set up the carved image he had made in God's temple, the very temple God had spoken about to David and his son Solomon, saying, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have selected out of all Israel's tribes, I will put my name forever. I will never again remove Israel from the fertile land I gave to your ancestors, provided they carefully do everything I have commanded them, keeping all the instruction, the regulations, and the case laws given through Moses. In this way, Manasseh led Judah and the residents of Jerusalem into doing even more evil than the nations that the Lord had wiped out before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. So the Lord brought the army commanders of Assyria's king against them. They captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and carried him off to Babylon. During his distress, Manasseh made peace with the Lord his God, truly submitting himself to the God of his ancestors. He prayed, and God was moved by his request. God listened to Manasseh's prayer and restored him to his rule in Jerusalem. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was the true God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So a large portion of uh, the book of Second Chronicles kind of details the life and the reign of the kings of Judah. It moves from the reign of Solomon all the way through the reign of Josiah um, and even Josiah's successors briefly at the end. Um, it also talks about the exile of God's people and ends with the eventual restoration of the nation of Judah. Second Chronicles gives us um, a history lesson of sorts, looking back at a people group who failed many, many, many times, Um, a people group that turned their back on God many, many, many times, but a people group that God remained faithful to um, more than they deserved. And one of those prominent kings that you might see in this image, if you look close enough, is King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz, a king who... Consistently turned his back on God and God's ways and led the people of Judah to the worship of other gods, of other um, idols, and whatever else kind of the more powerful or influential nations around them worshipped. Um, but King Hezekiah, as it talks about in a couple of chapters before where we read in chapter 29, um, King Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his ancestor David had done. This is the line of David these kings um, and Hezekiah is also described in Second Kings, which we'll get to in just a minute, um, in Second Kings, as one who trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Hezekiah was everything that his father before him, his father Ahaz, had not been. Um, in fact, he had even been called, um, a second David specifically in contrast to the Kings who were, um, who were before him, who turned away from the Lord. Um, but our story is not about Hezekiah. It's about his son, his son, Manasseh, um, who was a little bit different than Hezekiah. His, his son Manasseh was 12 years old when he kind of took reign, um, but they reigned together for about 12 years Um, or sorry, for nine years. He was 12, and together they were ruling for nine years over Judah. Um, And so it's not entirely exact um, on when it happens, but Manasseh begins to kind of shift the faithfulness of his father Hezekiah's reign to the unfaithful idol worship, the wicked ways of the kings who had come before. His actions as um, a leader of this nation caused him to be remembered throughout history as uh, the most wicked king in the nation of Judah. So this period kind of covers the low watermark of this moral kind of depravity that is under King Manasseh. He imitates and, and often even amplifies these Sins of his of past ancestors of those kings who had come before, and he turns Judah into this rebellious, idolatrous nation. And what we have in our text this morning from Second Chronicles thirty three is um, almost of it's an almost verbatim parallel to what came in Second Kings chapter twenty one, um, which is an account of Manasseh's great wickedness as the leader of Judah. But there's, there's some differences here. And before we get to that, I'm going to go through, we're going to look a little bit closer at what these wicked, unfaithful sins and rebellious ways of, of Manasseh are. So he did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. Um, I think that we all recognize this is never where you want to be right in very explicit, uh, explicitly against God's direct instructions. He did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. It's no secret. He imitated the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So previously in their history, God had brought judgment on the Canaanites, the Israelites, um, because of their sin. And they had been cast out of their land. And with Manasseh doing the same, this same kind of judgment and, and exile was largely to be expected um, with the unrepentant nation of Judah, at, led by Manasseh. Well, I have pictures that go along with these. He rebuilt um, the shrines that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He opposed these reforms that his father Hezekiah had done in good faith to, um, to lead the nation closer to God, to lead the nation in the way of God. Um, he, he took those reforms and he reformed them back to the old way and, and brought them back into this idolatry. He set up altars for the Baals and made sacred poles. Rather than um, following his godly, faithful father, Manasseh chose to imitate one of the very worst kings in the history of Israel, King Ahab. He chose kind of the same state-sponsored worship of Baal and Asherah, the sacred pole um, that Ahab had, had done. He bowed down to all the stars in the sky and worshiped them. He built altars in the Lord's temple. It was was bad enough that Manasseh um, allowed idol worship in Judah. But even worse, he corrupted the worship of the true God in the temple and made the temple a place of idol altars. And it says he built altars for all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. So Manasseh... Brought back some of those old ways of worshiping other gods, and then he brought some new ways as well, some new forms of idol worship. Um, the Babylonian Empire had been rising in influence and in power, um, and had this kind of special attraction to worshiping the stars, astrological worship. It's assumed um, that this is kind of who Manasseh was copying, was imitating when he um, set up these altars. He burned his own sons alive in the Ben Hanan Valley. Um, pretty gruesome, right? Sacrificed his own sons to the Canaanite God, um, Molech, who was worshiped with the burning of children. And so he sacrificed his own sons to worship this other God. He consulted sign readers, fortune tellers, and sorcerers, and used mediums and diviners. Um, these These different Kinds of individuals um, in that day kind of served as a sign that he was offering up worship to the devil, worship to Satan. He did much evil in the Lord's eyes and made him angry. You know, just in case listing all of these things didn't make that clear, got to list it there. Um, And then he set up the carved image that he had made in God's temple. This was the idol Asherah, the Canaanite goddess of fertility. Um, and she was worshipped through ritual prostitution. So Manasseh made the temple into this idolatrous um, brothel dedicated to Asherah. So all of this, there's, there's a lot of different um, things that we could dive into there. But for the most part, I hope we all see that Manasseh did not follow the way of the Lord. He was not faithful to worshipping the one true God um, that his father had. He had this faithful example of his father Hezekiah as, a, as one who would lead the people to this right, true worship of the one true God. But he doesn't just say, I'm not doing that. He takes what they had done before, implements that, adds his own flair to it, adds his own um, worship of other gods, idols to it. This is bad news. Um, He returns to the sinfulness of the past. He ruins the established religion. He tears apart his father's godly reformation of worship. He profanes the house of God with idols, dedicates his children's lives to Molech, and made the devil's servants his own guides and counselors. So how this all sums up, basically he continually chose to turn away from God. And toward the worship of other gods and idols. This is an evil man. He ruined a lot of people's lives. Um, He did a lot of evil things. But there's something else that I want us to be sure to recognize in this story. And that comes in verses 9 and 10 that I'll read for us again. It says, In this way, Manasseh led Judah and the residents of Jerusalem into doing even more evil than the nations that the Lord had wiped out before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. So this, this evil and wickedness of Manasseh, it's not just a personal thing. This is a communal thing. He leads an entire nation of people away from the word of God, away from the worship of God. And it says to the point that they would not even listen when the Lord spoke to them. And more often than not, um, this is where we find ourselves. Not Obviously not this exact situation, um, but like Judah and, and the people of Jerusalem, we allow ourselves to get kind of swept up and misled by those around us, by the world around us, the people around us, those in positions of authority or influence or power. And um, like some translations phrase verse nine here, we are seduced or misled by the humans that we allow to feed us, um, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, or perhaps more accurately, we are, we, we view ourselves as the faithful ones who are saying, hold up, wait a minute, uh, put a little, no, uh, so <laughs> very few of you, Grady got that one. Um, we say, hold on, wait a minute. Uh, that's not God's way of doing things. Don't you see what's happening here? You guys are wrong. You guys are evil. We're the, the faithful ones who say, you guys are doing this wrong. And we read stories like this, and we are absolutely appalled by the evil of Manasseh, um, the the ways that the people of Judah have just forgotten the one true God, And we find similar things like this in our day and age that cause us to start this same kind of finger pointing. So we read these reports of um, politicians who are doing immoral things and we think evil. They need to get what they deserve. They need to be thrown in jail. Or we see other leaders who are making decisions based on their own um, value systems or their own things that they think are correct that are different than our own and we're quick to say that they are corrupt or they are heartless or shady Or a bunch of other far nastier things that I'm not gonna say. We um, chat with our friends and we have these conversations that slowly turn to, you know, how poorly so and so is doing things or, or how dumb that person's decision was. Or we see the ways that other generations do things or the ways other generations think and we think they're so wrong. How could they even think that way or live that way? They don't know anything. When we see what we think is wrong or evil or sinful, it is so easy for our first reaction to judge, to boo and hiss at them and to say, oh, you're so wrong. And, and even as I, was, as I was working through this, and even as I was thinking of examples, I found myself, I had to check myself thinking, oh, I'm thinking of these examples because these are things that I struggle with. These are things that I think all the time. But what I hope that we see here in this is that sin can take many different forms. Sin can be all up in your face and look like idol worship and destruction of of the temple and the holiness of the temple. Or it can be a little more nuanced. It can be black and white and clear cut and say things like, you shall not murder. And we think, okay, cool, done. Got that one. But it can also be a little bit more uh, trickier than that. It doesn't just look like actions or decisions or words that others do or say. It can infiltrate our lives in ways that we don't even realize and cause us to stumble in ways that we don't even realize if we are not careful. Because the gods of this world, the idols of this world are many. And while following them may not look like sacrificing your own children Or um, building these altars to the heavens, to the stars, like it did in Manasseh's day. It may very well look like this image of finger pointing and saying how wrong or evil or sinful other people are. It happened in the Garden of Eden with the first humans. It happened throughout the history of Israel and God's people. And it happens... Here and now, today. So, like I mentioned earlier, um, the first nine verses of this text are almost word for word the same as the first nine verses of 2 Kings chapter 21. But there's a, a shift here that doesn't happen in 2 Kings. It details Manasseh's um, own personal exile, followed by this very, very shocking repentance. In verse 10, it says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. So the Lord speaking to Manasseh in the first place, um, it it serves as kind of a summary um, of this prophecy that God's judgment was coming on Manasseh and on Judah and Jerusalem. Um, And that prophecy can be found in more full language um, in 2 Kings 21. But it's just kind of summarized here as the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. So you might ask, why do we need two versions of the same exact story? Why do we need to read multiple times about this awful man and all of these awful things that he did? Because I think it's a it's a matter of perspective. There's there's a different way of viewing these two texts. In 2nd Kings 21, it presents Manasseh as the worst of Judah's kings. Um, and his sin and his leadership lead the faithful people following God into exile. Exile is kind of this inevitable conclusion because of, of how wicked and evil their ruler is. And then second Chronicles 33, again, details how evil and wicked of a man Manasseh is and how he leads the people away. But then it illustrates this possibility of forgiveness and of restoration, even for, the worst of sinners god 's great mercy shows up simply in the fact that He was under no obligation um, to warn them or to correct them, or as verse ten says it, to speak to Manasseh and his people. God was under no obligation to do that. There are there 's far and away enough evidence of wrongdoing that god 's judgment could just wipe them out and say, "They are too evil, they are too bad." sorry, but God speaks. God speaks to Manasseh. God speaks to the people. He would have been entirely justified in bringing judgment at that moment, Um, especially to the extent that they had turned away from God. But instead, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. And even when it says they, they do not listen to him, even then, God's mercy continues to pursue God's mercy is still evident because God doesn't just leave them and forget about them and say, uh, whatever, have, have your sinful fun. God, God takes it a step further. He doesn't, he doesn't just leave them there. God allows that sin to happen. God allows that those decisions to be made, but God's mercy is always there as a lifeline. Manasseh's wickedness, it brings invasion, as we read. It brings defeat. He's beaten up, he's chained up, he's taken off into captivity in the Babylonian Empire. And this, this king's personal punishment for these sins, it serves as sort of an anticipation of what will happen, what this prophecy in Second Kings says of what will happen to the people of Judah, this exile that has been prophesied about them but it's in this exile in this captivity that Manasseh realizes just how great his own sins are and just how much he needs God. And he repents it says that he made peace with the Lord, his God, truly submitting himself to the God of his ancestors. He prayed and God was moved by his request. Manasseh's repentance doesn't eliminate the exile. We, we read that it, it still happens, but it does serve as sort of a delay to this exile. The consequences of the unfaithfulness of God's people still happens, but this story illustrates specifically God's heart for humanity. That true repentance, true devotion, a changing of your ways, a turning back to God, it brings about God's mercy, not God's judgment. Because the sins of Manasseh are great. Not like good great, like big great, many great. But God's mercy is far greater. God's mercy restores. God's mercy overwhelms the repentant heart of even the worst sinner. The excessive nature, the, the wild nature of Manasseh's sin And the communal effect that it causes are nothing compared to the great forgiveness that God offers. God's heart for restoration far outweighs God's heart for judgment or punishment. When it comes to true repentance, we see time and time again throughout scripture that God is kind of a pushover. God's heart is not to just destroy. God's heart is to restore. And so when we make the effort to restore, when we take that step of repentance, God's a pushover in in the best way. That's not an insult to God. God just so greatly desires mercy and grace that regardless of how many times his people turn their backs on him, despise him and hurt him, he continues to offer this lifeline of mercy. And so in this text about Manasseh, who has done these awful things, who has led an entire group of people away from the Lord, God hears Manasseh's prayer. It says God listens to his desperate plea. And I, I love the translation that we read that God is moved. God is moved by Manasseh's request. He is moved by Manasseh's repentance. And then God restores him. God's mercy is greater than the sins of even the worst of sinners. God wants the heart of humanity far more than God wants to wipe out the evil of humanity. God's mercy extends far beyond our own and far beyond what we can possibly imagine. God's mercy is available to the absolute worst people in our world. The ones whose sins, at least to us, seem far too excessive and egregious to be restored, to be forgiven. And that is great news. It's great news for those people who we think there's no way that they could ever be forgiven. But it's also great news for us because you and I are among those whose sins are numerous, those whose sins are many, whose sins are so great that any normal human would think, no, forget that. I'm done with you. We are all far from perfect. We're all led astray by evil, Sometimes that we choose, sometimes that we realize after the fact we have chosen. We all sin, we all fall short, the glory of God. But God's mercy is for all of us. Regardless of your history, regardless of your shame, your guilt, your selfishness, the number of times that you have turned your back on God and worshiped those other gods, those other idols in the world around us, God's mercy is greater. And it is this never-ending, this never-lacking mercy that our song this morning sings about. It's called His Mercy is More. And this song, it was written by two fellas named Matt. Matt Boswell and Matt Papa. And these are two songwriters. They're considered to be some of the um, most popular modern-day hymn writers. So Matt Boswell... That guy right there, he is the founding pastor of the Trails Church in Prosper, Texas, um, and he has served as a worship pastor in many different churches um, over the last 20-ish years. And then Matt Papa, he's a little bit more hipster. Um, he is a singer, a songwriter, worship leader. He regularly tours the U.S. Um, with with other people, um, but also serves as kind of an, they call it an artist in residence. Um which I think means a form of worship leader at Marco Presbyterian church in Marco Island, Florida. So together, the two of them have been collaborating for over a decade now. Um, but they've never lived anywhere near each other. One's in Florida, one's in Texas. They've never lived anywhere near each other. Um, but they have worked together and put together this album. Um, I should have figured out the year. I forgot the year, 2019, I believe. Uh, but this album, this song, His Mercy is More, comes from the album, His Mercy is More. Um, but the album is hymns. It is modern day hymns that they have written together. Um, some that they have written originally, some that they have taken old hymns and, and put their own flair on. Uh, but Boswell and Papa wrote His Mercy is More from the words of a pastoral letter and sermon, um, from a man named John Newton. John Newton. Newton was a pastor for many years, but is perhaps slightly better known throughout history for a song that he wrote that's been a staple at a lot of churches over the last hundreds of years, Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and this letter, he, he often, uh, you know, like Paul and like a lot of of. Older um, ministers of the Gospel wrote letters back and forth to to his congregants to his people and newton 's letter it is addressed simply to a Christian friend, um, but it was written in March of seventeen sixty seven and i 'm going to read an excerpt of it a little bit later, but that is this this uh, song as we'll, as you can see in the lyric sheets as we 'll see in just a minute there 's a a line that is repeated throughout every verse and chorus. It says, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And that, that line comes from this letter that John Newton wrote. And one more point of information before we listen to this song. Um, This song is performed by Keith and Kristen Getty, who we're going to hear a little bit more about in, is it next week? Next week, um, with the song that we're doing next week. Um, But, the Gettys have this to say about Matt Boswell and Matt Papa and the songs that they have written put together for this album. They say in these last years, our paths have happily and significantly crossed with several hymn writers who share similar goals to our own. When it comes to writing hymns for the local church, the hymns of Matt Boswell and Matt Papa have refreshed our own family and local church, a story shared by millions of other people around the world. These hymns are a beautiful, much needed resource for this generation and the next. So this song and this entire album that they have put together, um, it was written for us, for the sake of the local church, that we might sing it, that we might know the truth behind it of what it means to be sung collectively about the God that we all gather together to worship. Um, So we're going to listen to this song now, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it.
1: pain his life was the cost. We stood near the death, we
0: His mercy is more. So we're going to walk through this song a little bit together. Um, I'll have the words on the screen, but again, you have the lyric sheets in your bulletins. Um, but verse 1 here, it speaks of God's remembrance of our sins, or lack thereof. So at first, this seems a little bit contradictory. Um, the the phrase that it says there... Um, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. It seems a bit contra- contradictory to claim that God, we, we believe that God is all-knowing, but then he does not remember our sins. But I want, I want it to be clear that remembering is not the same as forgetting, right? So in Hebrews 8, uh, God speaks of this new covenant through Christ in which God claims he will be merciful toward our sins, remembering them no more. So forgetting happens when we cannot remember something. Um, And I tell you what, it happens to me a lot these days. I don't know if it's becoming a father or what, but I forget a lot. But this is not God forgetting. It's not that God cannot remember our sins, um, but no longer remembering is a choice. It's a choice that God chooses not to bring up that thing that we do still have the ability to remember. It's it's a choice up for God to not bring up our sinful past or use up that sinful past against us. It is a choice to not remember. It's not that God forgets. So our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. That that line at the end of it's at the end of each verse and At the end of each chorus, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So moving on to verse two, this verse two speaks of God's willingness to allow us free will. We believe that God gives us the autonomy to choose for ourselves, to to make our own decisions, to live life how we choose. Um, And we can choose daily how to think, how to act, how to speak, how to participate in the world around us. We are not robots. But it says that throughout this, when we constantly roam about this earth, God doesn't direct us how to act. He doesn't force us to act in certain ways, but it says that he is tenderly calling us home. He is gently calling us home, back to him, back to the original, our original design, regardless of our standing in life, the the weakest, the vilest, the poor, God's desire is to bring us all back to him, back home. And how does this happen? By remembering that last line that our sins they are many, his mercy is more. And then we get to verse 3. Verse 3 speaks to this kind of culminating evidence that God's God has love and mercy for us, and that evidence is through Christ's sacrifice. Um, the language that's used here, it calls to mind this list of our sinful crimes or our moral debt that we owe to God. Um, it's this idea that divine forgiveness must satisfy divine justice. God is not willing or able to forgive our sins without first requiring the satisfaction of it. Um, but we believe that this is, it's not the full picture of the sacrifice of Christ and the meaning behind the sacrifice of Christ. Because if this were the case, God's mercy and grace are not free in that scenario. God has to be, um, placated or bribed in some way. And some kind of, um, reimbursement must be paid to this angry, moody, distant God. Um, there's a, a priest, an, a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr, um, he puts it this way in in one of his books. He says Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity, for it did not need changing. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. So Jesus didn't come to sacrifice Himself so that God's mind about judgment and punishment would be changed. God does not require um, some debt that he he sent jesus to pay off for us god desires this right relationship with him this relationship that existed back in the garden of eden that sin has destroyed god desires that and the sacrifice of jesus provides like the graphic that i showed last week it provides this bridge back to god this bridge back to right relationship with god this, this idea is the, it's the theology of atonement. The need for humanity to be reconciled to a holy God. And it is the process by which we become at one with God. At one-ment. Atonement. It is how we return to living in harmony with God. Like humanity's, again, original design back in the Garden of Eden. And verse 3 of this song is the perfect example of why... Our theology should not be grounded in the worship songs that we sing. it should be grounded in the Word of God, um, not saying that this verse three is wrong don 't hear me saying that, but that we should be investigating this deeper because there, there are scripture passages that contribute to this idea. There are scripture passages that lead us to a, a fuller picture of atonement as important. To our faith and our Christian life um, as music, as worship and song is, it is not the basis of our faith. The basis of our faith is God's word. So when we sing these songs, there might be lines or verses that, that we don't agree with, that we maybe um, think might be a little bit off. Um, and that's okay. That's a, that's a good thing because that means that we are thinking critically about the songs that we are singing. And that's why putting this series into practice is important to think deeper about what we are actually singing. So what I want us all to see here um, is how important it is for us to have a foundation, not in worship music theology, not in popular Christian theology, but in the word of God. So that's verse three. And then we come to the chorus. Chorus. Um, And that is, the chorus is our response. Praise the Lord for God's mercy that is greater than darkness, greater than our sin. It says, his mercy is more. That phrase is repeated every time. His mercy is more. It It is unquantifiable. Whatever sin, whatever darkness there is, his mercy is more. And the only appropriate response to that, to that recognition that our sins are many, but God's mercy is more, is to say, "Praise the Lord, PTL." Our sins they are many; His mercy is more. I love how each verse and and the cor- each chorus revolve around this reminder that our sins they are many; His mercy is more. It is a reminder about our weakness, our insufficiency but God's goodness. At its core, this song is, it it mentions how we interact with God, but at its core, it's about the character of God. About how regardless of the extent or the number of times that we sin, God's mercy is more. God is far more gracious and merciful to us. On our own, none of us are good enough, none of us are worthy enough to live in this faithful, right relationship with a perfectly good, a perfectly holy God, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. But Jesus came to be that for us, to be the perfect one without sin, in order that we might be restored or renewed to our original design, to that perfect relationship with God and with God's creation. There's another character in the Bible Um, whose name was Paul, also known as Saul, he was no perfect human. For years before he found Jesus, he was known as Saul and he was persecuting and killing Christians, followers of Christ, um, because of this great Jewish faith that he had. Saul was convinced that Jesus was an imposter and a liar um, and followers of, of him were a threat to Judaism. And so he was devoted to terrorizing, to to destroying these followers of Jesus with the hope that he could kind of extinguish what he believed was a false message. But then he has this radical experience with God and his eyes are opened to the truth. His sins they are many, but God's mercy is more and he lived his life as a reflection of this. And in his first letter to Timothy, he writes this, Christ Jesus came into the world To save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. The worship team can come back up now. Um, This Paul's words here, they speak to what this story about Manasseh is. It is an illustration for us. It is a display of this incredible patience and mercy that God shows to each and every person that walks this earth. It's a, this song is then a reminder of what the story of Manasseh, the story, the larger story of Paul is illustrating, that God is a merciful God, that the, the mercy that God offers to humanity is far greater than any, sin that we have committed. That same mercy that was available to Manasseh when he repented, that same mercy that was available to Paul when he repented, that same mercy is available to each one of us. And so we sing this song together to declare who God is and the lengths at which God will go to help us realize that. That there is nowhere we can go that is outside this lifeline of mercy that God offers to us. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So let's stand now and sing this song together.